This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It may not seem like a big deal, but the roads and streets we travel every day were not always there. But when those roads were made and paved, how did the placement impact the animals and habitats of that area? You might want that new overpass, but will it negatively impact the natural environment? Today on the show, we welcome Amy Carson, wildlife biologist from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who will shed some light on the impact that roads have on fishes, plants, and wildlife when placed. And as always, Dr. Major is here ready for your pet questions. So join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, or you can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, or maybe just want to listen to it again, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, some weather uh, in Mississippi, hopefully not as severe as some of the things that we've been having here the last couple of weeks, but I think that the weekend is supposed to be nice weather. Uh, Libby, do you have any events to tell us about? I do. Uh, bird songs and bluegrass at the Museum of Natural Science, Saturday from 4 in the afternoon to 8 in the evening. Uh, music, art, and then lots of information about birds. Let's see, some of our... Uh, uh, Bill Ellison's going to be the MC, and he and Temperance and Jeff are all going to play. Alan Sibley and the Magnolia Ramblers, Harmony and Grits are the music. The food is pig and pie, cups, uh, Papa John's, (laughs) uh, Crunch Time Concession, so that's good. Mm -hmm. And then that's on top of the science and bird, all kinds of information. So it's a a chance to get... um, Go birding in a, a real fun atmosphere. All right. And the, the trails will be fine. And, um, oh, and the Birds of Prey. There's a, a live Birds of Prey exhibit. The, they'll fly and do a whole program in the theater from the, um, oh, the group down in, around Hattiesburg that does such a good job. They're really a great group. They fly around in the theater in the museum? Yes, the Freedom oh, wow. Ranch bring them, and they'll, they'll fly. Like one person will be in the back that knows them, one of the trainers, and in the front, and they'll fly over everybody's head. It's really fun, Kevin. Yeah. You might have to go check it out. It's pretty fun. Yeah. All right. Also, uh, our producer Java found this that uh, it's an Earth Day event at the Oro Keep Museum uh, in Biloxi, and it is tonight or this afternoon, actually, at five. Uh, it's an event for art lovers with a passion for the environment. Uh, the Museum of Art, the Oro Keep Museum of Art, um, will invite inter- interdisciplinary artist Rebecca Alston, New Orleans visual artist Allison Stewart, and the executive director of the USM Marine Education Center, Chris Snyder. Uh, it's a kind of a combination of art and care for the environment, and it is in conjunction with the new exhibit at the museum called Elements of Change. So again, that's at the o- O'Keefe Museum of Art in Biloxi this afternoon at 5. And Kevin, let me uh, say a thank you oh, to... Oh, uh, I did get one message, too, that... Um, hang on a minute, Louie. On the... 
Oh, I'm sorry, Libby, to jump in here. I want to uh, say a thank you to uh, Pamela Savalo. She's the director of education at the O'Hare O'Keefe um, Museum of Art, and she's she says she listens every week, and she sent that in. So I just wanted to give her a, a good shout out. Thank you, Pamela. All right, <laughs> great, yeah, yeah. And uh, another Coast event that regrettably they had to cancel the the Boneyard bird tour the water is just high enough they can't get the kayaks in they said the rookery's fine the birds are okay but we can't go see them by kayak this saturday so we'll have to do it another day all right Uh, a couple of emails here to get to Uh, we had uh, by the way uh, a thank you to listeners of creature comforts and all our mpb listeners who supported us last week during our on-air fundraising campaign our drive time uh the money raised during creature comforts is important uh because later that day i mean you remember last thursday lots of mississippi was really under the gun with severe weather and so uh, our duty as broadcasters was to you know help folks know what was going on with the weather so we basically kind of had to give up a little bit on our drive Uh, so we certainly appreciate everyone who showed their support uh, for us uh during our drive time and again thanks to everyone who made a contribution and a big thanks again to our sustaining members you who give that ongoing uh, monthly support we really do appreciate that uh and so we didn't get to take any questions so we do have a couple of emails here to get to uh what is a bird identification we'll get to in just a minute but this one is an interesting one uh also with some pictures uh but it says a pair of armadillos dug a den under my house with two entrances, one at each side of the house, unless it's two different dens. They were out today rooting around in the side yard in broad daylight, which surprised me since I've only seen armadillos at night around here. They're quite fearless and were not scared of me as I stood very close taking photos and following to see if they were indeed the residents of the new burrow under the house. Even when I spoke and made noise, they didn't react. Then finally returned to the hole. I think they're adults, although they seem smaller than I expected. I need to kick them out, but I'm concerned that they might have babies down there. Will they abandon the burrow once the babies are grown or is this a permanent home for them how can i evict them humanely okay those are going to be hard questions to answer without waiting to see how much they like it there um i guess there it is possible that there could be babies this time of year in the burrow we might have to call kathy shropshire and find out some more information she's the mammologist that we often ask questions of but um and if she's listening she could call in if she's got some ideas about what to do with the armadillos um otherwise i'll do a little research and find out what's the the best way to get them to move on i know they tend not to react to people Mm -hmm. and i honestly think some of them are not really aware that you're there Hmm. armadillos are very much in their own little world and who was the the guy we had on that's the nuisance animal guy uh, a couple maybe a month or so ago the critter wrangler oh yeah critter catcher yeah yes and he you can find him online the right. critter catcher he yeah he could probably help them right and if i remember correctly he would come out and sort of help a- assess the situation yes. and uh, and give them some possible uh you know, uh, things to do to to help uh, yes. remedy the situation. He moved there. some bats for us that were in Paul's mom's house. Uh, where where were the armadillos? Uh, Although he does go see. pretty much statewide, all over Central Mississippi for sure. I don't think it, it mentions. So there's not no there's not a mention of where 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 she's located. Yeah, so. we'll find some more information. Right. I've got a picture of a group of purple finches and 
right in the middle of them is a looks from this photograph completely white finch so whether it's an albino or a leucistic finch it is very white and it was found on a bird feeder in madison county so you might keep an eye out it's a very interesting bird and easy to spot so um that's a fun bird thank you sandra for sending us a picture of that so you think it's a, a, a purple finch? I'm okay. pretty sure that's he. It has a little finch beak, and the body is shaped right. It's not a real sharp picture, but it's 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 eating bird seeds with other purple finches, and it looks pretty much like a purple finch. And so albino animals like that are just part of nature, I guess. Yeah, they're not. Um, I don't know percentage wise. Um, you can read about it online and pretty much the, sometimes they give you a little bit of idea of how frequently it occurs, but it's pretty rare and um, it's not always a good thing for the animal because like this bird mm-hmm. really stands out. Right. Yeah. If yeah. a cooper's hawk was going to swoop down there, my guess is that might be the first finch that would be taken. Yeah, you're right, because as we've talked about, you know, a lot of animals have the coloring they have as camouflage, and so you're right, if there's, and and certainly you're right in that picture, again, that bird does kind of stick out uh, among all the other ones. Yeah. Uh, Just a reminder, if you ever see uh, a bird or a creature when you're out and about in Mississippi and would like uh, some identification, um, you can always send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. If you can, though, snap a good picture of it uh, with your smartphone and send it. And if we can't uh, figure it out, uh, Libby uh, has some uh, folks that she knows at the museum, and so we have some resources there. We can try to get that information to you. So we try to do our best to to give you that information uh, that you need. And again, though, it is better to have a picture because sometimes, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, three people could look at an animal, and you would probably get three separate descriptions of what the animal looked like. So pictures, it's uh, it's easier for us to identify. All right, we need to take our first break. Uh, when we get back, we will dive into our guest, uh, our topic today with our guest, Amy Carson, from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about the impact that roads, especially new roads, have on our natural landscape. Also, Dr. Major is here ready to take some pet questions. So give us a call and join the conversation this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. MPB would like to thank Daniel, Coker, Horton, and Bell and the Mississippi Healthcare Alliance for underwriting MPB programs. Your company can be an underwriter, too. Find out more. Go to mpbonline.org underwriting to find out how. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is Amy Carson from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment, the number today is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Amy, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, If you would tell us a little about your background and and how you ended up at the Fish and Wildlife Service. Well, um, I started working in Mississippi um, back in 2001. I was with the Forest Service. And before that, I came here from Missouri, where I studied um, stream fish ecology in college. And um, and I was in North Mississippi for several years, and we studied stream fish ecology up 
with the Forest Service. I was part of a research group. And um, uh, six years ago, I moved to Jackson and took my position with the Fish and Wildlife Service. And I work with the Department of Transportation now. And um, I help them um, reduce the impacts of roadways on our fish, plants, and wildlife, and uh, particularly species that are protected under the Endangered Species Act. But we also... um, we work uh, with the roadway department on, on other species that are vulnerable and, and try to help protect them so that they won't require protection under the Endangered Species Act. And, um, yeah, it's been a great way that the marriage of my past job and my present job have come together um, because some of the ways that roadways impact our species, um, they impact some of the species that we were studying back in my last position. So uh, growing up, were you someone who enjoyed uh, the great outdoors? Oh, very much so. My parents, um, every summer, we always went boating and canoeing, and we spent a ton of time in the Ozarks and looking in those pretty streams there and looking for fish and crayfish and just spent my days outdoors as much as I could. I really have always loved being outside, and I've always loved water. And so in your current position, are you still able to get out uh, in, in the field? Yes, I am. I'm really lucky. I have a good balance between um, being able to get outside. Um, I get outside on a lot of projects, especially if they're in an area where we have sensitive species before the project begins. Um, I get to occasionally go out and do field work and, and try to see if those critters are there. Um, I get to go and look at uh, bridges and see whether or not there's bats in bridges. And, and I also spend a lot of time in, in the office as well. But it's, it's a great balance. I'm very lucky. All right, we'll be talking with Amy throughout the hour. So, again, if you have a question, uh, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll start off on the phones by talking to Sharon, who has called in from Meridian. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, thank you, Amy, for the job you do, and thank you, Public Radio. This question is for Dr. Major. Should I have called later? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, Dr. Major, I have three rescues, one, four, and, and five years old, that are high positive for heartworms. And I've been reading, and the, my vet wants to do a sh- two shots back-to-back, and I was reading American Heartworm Association that says it kills 90%, but if we do one shot, wait 30 days and do two shots, it kills 99%, and I, they can't be transported to Maine until they're heartworm-free. Um, what's the best protocol, and how long might they che- test positive? Okay, one of the things that uh, I would ask you is what kind of condition the dogs are in. Are they symptomatic, or are they um, in good Two health? of them are great. Well, they all three run around and play, but one of them will hack every once in a while, and they've okay. both been on the doxycycline. Um, well, one of them's been on it for two months. The other two have been on it for a month. Right. Um, they're healthy. They run around and play, but the four-year-old does hack every once in a while, maybe a couple of times right. a day. And certainly that may or may not be as a result of the heartworms. Uh, have you started any treatment other than the doxycycline? Um, no. They okay. told me to do the doxycycline for 30 days. Right. And, again, um, one of them has been on there a little longer than that. Yes. And then they were going to start them on the prednisone the day of the treatment. But I was reading you should start them on the prednisone before the treatment. That's an optional thing, and certainly I would leave it uh, to the veterinarian to decide when to start that. But the safest protocol, in my opinion, would be to go with one shot, wait 30 days, and then do the two shots. It spreads out the time a little bit longer, 
but it is safer and uh, has been shown, as you said, to what 99% of the heartworms will be killed. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. I appreciate y'all being there. As far as how Thank long so it much. as far as how long it takes them to clear up, you would have to um, do microfilaria. In other words, look for microfilaria in the blood. And are they on heartworm preventive now? Worm treatment for six months. It just took me this long to raise a thousand dollars to start on the treatment. Yes, ma'am. I understand, but they are on the six month pro heart shot. Um, no, okay. they're on heartworm pills, okay. um, that's heart guard pills for okay. six months. Right. Okay, I understand. Well, that's good. So they, they've started that, and that will be an aid in helping to speed this up in a way. It's a process, uh, and I admire you for taking care of them and hope they do well. And I admire you all for being there. Thank you, and thank uh, for Public Radio. All right. Thanks, Sharon, for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Amy Carson from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we're going to talk about the impact that some of our roads and bridges might have on uh, the natural area where we place those roads and bridges. Uh, if you have a question or a comment or a pet question for Dr. Major, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Amy, you talked about that you work with some of the uh, creatures on the endangered species list. Does Mississippi have many on that list, many that we would find here, uh, animals that we would find here? Yeah, we do have several um, species on that are federally protected under the Endangered Species Act. Um, and some are designated threatened and others are designated endangered. And da- endangered means they're more imperiled than threatened. And um, we have, I think we're up to 46 um, threatened and endangered species in our state. So we have quite a few different um, species that are, are vulnerable. So uh, what are some that you work with that people might recognize? Um, well, in the in the road world, um, the things I kind of come across most um, there's uh, gopher tortoises are a common species in South Mississippi. Um, well, not common; they're one of the threatened species in South Mississippi um, that we um, work with a lot. And um, up on North Mississippi, we have a couple of listed bat species. Um, so that's interesting. And then there's a lot of freshwater mussel species that we have listed in the state. That probably, I think we have um, at least 14 to 15, maybe a few more um, federally listed mussel species in the state. So that's a big proportion of what we have that's threatened and endangered. Um, if you could give us an idea of how putting a road way through an area might affect some of the animals that live there. Yeah, um, well, when we put roadways through different areas, you know, um, it can have the potential of fragmenting the habitat. So there could be an area where a road might go through and say if it's a salamander, such as we have in our state that um, one of the biologists at the museum works on, Mm -hmm. um, it can separate their populations between where they breed and then where they spend the other part of their year. And so you can have impacts due to roadways because of that. and also um, where we have where roadways cross over streams, depending on how the roadways are designed, they can have large impacts on streams. Um, sometimes if you have a culvert um, on a roadway that crosses over a stream, uh, it can cause a barrier and actually um, cut off passage above and below that structure for fish and other aquatic organisms that live in there. Uh, what is a culvert? 
So um, culverts are, you usually see them at, at um, road crossings, and they can either be, um, they can be big concrete box structures, or they can be round structures, like big pipes. That's the terminology we use as a culvert for both of those different types of structures. But they're typically four-sided, so you have a bottom to it. There are a few structures out there um, called bottomless culverts. It's been something that's been used in recent years to kind of address some of the issues that you can have with aquatic organism passage over culverts. Uh, but it's interesting. You did mention a Tom Mann, who is a frequent guest here, and that, that is a perfect example of what you were saying was because what he has to do is he get his bucket brigade gets the salamanders from one side of the Natchez Trace and has to move them over to the other side because uh, that road had sort of bisected uh, where they naturally would need to go to, uh, you know, to... Uh, to reproduce and that sort of thing. So that that was a, a great example. Um, we've got a phone call to get to, so let's uh, switch gears a little bit. And uh, Shirley is on the line from Starkville. Good morning, Shirley. Go ahead. Good morning. Thank you for your program. Um, I have already uh, put out my uh, hummingbird feeders. Good. And, uh, how, however, <laughs> I have not seen any hummingbirds. Uh, how, uh, I mean, when usually... Do they appear? They, um, they're in your area now, but probably not in really large numbers. They're, uh, you know, they're coming up from the south. So if you can envision, uh, my my feeder was just completely drained the other day, last week. So in one day, so I, I, my birds may be heading your way. The, the first okay. ones that come tend to not stay. They tend to keep going up. So, Shirley, if I were you, I'd keep it out a few more days, and I'll bet they're heading that way. Have you had one them in other, the past? Yeah. Uh, one other question. Um, okay, so I planted around the, uh, I made a flower bed of um, red flowers, uh, and a little lantana that's variegated um, because I always was led to believe that they're attracted to red. But then when I went to the co-op to get uh, some additional red flowers, the person there said, oh, well, no, they're not necessarily attracted to red. They just like bright colors. So... Yeah, and I think red may be the very favorite, but they will go to other things. And if you have a little red there and then you've got a bunch of white flowers surrounding the red, they're going to find the white ones, too. It's, you know, I guess the same reason we make a stop sign red. Red is so visible, but you don't have to have a whole lot of it. So um, whatever color flower you've got is probably going to be great for them. The big thing is that it needs to be the types of flowers that make lots of nectar. And there's some things that make more than others. The lantana will probably be good for them. They'll like that. And uh-huh. it doesn't, you know, that's what is it's probably kind of orangey. Some of them are real yellow and some of them are more orange. But uh, it, yeah, everything doesn't have to be red to make a hummingbird happy. Thank you. Good luck. I hope you get plenty of them. All right, uh, Shirley? 
Thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Amy Carson from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and she's helping us better understand the impact that sometimes roads and bridges and other moon, uh, roadways uh, can affect the natural surroundings when they're laid down or when we uh, make roads and bridges. Uh, so, Amy, um, it, it, what can the general public do? It, or let me ask it this way. Are highway departments, are governmental entities becoming a little bit more aware of this problem and have you seen any sort of movement towards their being more careful about where they place, especially on, on streams, you know, bridges and culverts and those sorts of things? Oh, definitely. Um, uh, uh, the highway department, the county, they're all really forward thinking and looking to putting in culverts that won't cause barriers to fish and aquatic organism passage. So there's been a real movement in that direction in our state. Um, so I'm, that's mostly what um, our trans- in the transportation world that's being done right now. It's a lot of bridge replacements. And um, so they've been great. They're aware of it. They're really working hard to um, you know, really minimize the impacts of these structures that they put in that can have lifespans of, you know, 50 to 75 years. Um, so it is interesting because when you end up with the barrier at a culvert, um, some of the stream fishes are, most of them are very short-lived, like two to three years. And so when they can't move freely in that stream, and they have a barrier there that might be there if it's a concrete culvert for 75 years, it can really impact populations of that species when they're not able to access where they want to go and spawn. And, and you know, I think when we talk about these things, the one thing that I always like to keep in mind is the way that our environment is and our ecosystems are so interconnected. Because you might originally think, oh, well, if this one creature is impacted by that, what is the harm? But they're part of a web, and so that impact on that might then have impacts on other creatures you know, of uh, the what is it? Maybe the butterfly effect. I think is what they call that. Yeah, you might not care about that little bitty fish in there, but you might want to catch a bass. And the, when the when the bass is small, he's got to eat something even smaller than him. So you need you need all kinds of sizes of of living things in an area too. Absolutely. Uh, before we go to our first break, tell us about the the Yazoo darter. Well, the Yazoo darter is a little fish that lives up in North Mississippi, and it just occurs in two watersheds in North Mississippi. That's the only place in the world that you can find it. Um, it likes small streams up there. Um, it lives in little streams that flow typically into the little Tallahatchie and the Yachna drainage. Um, they only live two to three years. And I will tell you, darters are my favorite fish. And the reason being is the males in the springtime, they get these beautiful colorations. And Yazoo darters are no exception to that rule. Um, the males will get bright blue underneath their like chin area under their heads. And then this just striking orange on their bellies in springtime. And the females don't get that. They're really drab. But um, these fish, their range is so limited and so small. Um, you know, it's just it's pretty neat. We've been really working on some programs in our office to, um, you know, do what we can to reduce impacts to them and protect that species. Um, they're not a federally listed species, and we want to keep it that way. So. All right. Uh, we need to take another break. When we come back, we'll continue visiting with Amy Carson about the impact roads have on our Mississippi wildlife. Uh, if you've had any recent animal encounters, if you have a question for Amy or a pet question, give us a phone call this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Reach us by calling one 672 7464 or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. More creature comforts after this, so stay tuned. 
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest this hour is Amy Carson from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we're talking about the ways that uh, building roads can sometimes impact uh, the environment around that, and Amy uh, is, works to make sure that those uh, the effects are mitigated. Uh, and so if you have a question for her, a pet question, or as I said, a brush with wildlife that you'd like to share, please give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We do have some phone calls to get to. We also have an email or two to share. This first one says, I have an overweight five-year-old beagle dachshund who cries constantly if I'm cooking or eating. Do you recommend any food or behavioral things that I can do? Well, you know, this is a common, <coughs> very common problem. And, of course, this little dog, obviously likes to smell and uh, probably is getting some treats uh, from the kitchen. I would suggest several things. Number one, let's find out the exact weight of the puppy. I would suggest talking to your veterinarian about foods that can be used to help reduce the weight. And also, at a five-year-old dog, um, we might need to check a thyroid situation um, simply because uh, that could enter in. So control intake set a guide or a target weight and possibly a specialized food and don't give a lot of treats uh, it's very difficult not to when the dog is sitting there and whining but uh, avoid treats at all costs if you can you're right because i think uh, they realize that hey when i do this i, I get a treat so i'm going to keep doing that so i can get another treat well they they know an easy target there's usually <laughs> one person in the family that gives in before the others but just make a pact that you will uh, try to get this little puppy to lose some weight. I don't know how heavy it is. Uh, we know that dachshunds and beagles both tend to put on some weight if they have the opportunity. All right. We're going to bounce back and forth between phone calls and emails, so let's go to the phones. William's on the line from Starkville. Good morning, William. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Uh, I have a question. Um, I liked your term a moment ago anyway with a, a wildlife situation. Uh, I just learned that uh, friends who have a pond uh, are troubled by otters, and it may only be an otter. It's a big pond, uh, small lake, and they say that it that the otter goes after the biggest fish, will will is in the habit of taking a little bite out of it, killing the fish, and leaving it and going after more. And I just wondered. I, I found that hard to believe. But uh, when I re- heard your program this morning, I thought you might be able to shed some light on this. They want to get rid of the otter, and I'm, uh, I, I kind of think that otters are, are some of the uh, nicest creatures around. And uh, also, I might add that they got a pond that probably has excess fish in it, but they want to get rid of little fish and uh, save the big ones. They fish it and always throw the big ones back and uh, eat the smaller ones. Anyway, that's the situation. I'd appreciate uh, professional comment on the significance of this and, and uh, to what degree the, the otter deserves uh, his freedom and uh, his right to, to be there. Well, I, I love otters, so um, it's a tough question for me because I kind of want to say, oh, it's okay, the otter's fine, it's just a few fish, but um, I can imagine the impacts they end up having on someone's pond and on their fishing pond can be... Um, you know, a pretty large impact, but um, I'm I'm not sure off the top of my head some mitigation measures that could be taken. Um, 
first off, I, I know in situations like this in the past, kind of what's been revealed later is that people were feeding the otters, and then they got fearless as far as harassing people almost on the lake to continue to beg for fish. So be sure they're not doing that, or that any of the neighbors aren't doing that. Be sure they're not feeding yeah. the otters fish. And then no, that's it's, not happening. Yeah, as far as yeah. the big fish thing, you know, I, I, I admit I'm on your side too, William, about taking care of the otter because it'd be so much fun to watch on your pond. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Really, they're they're great animals to watch, but. Um, I would imagine they're also eating a lot of little fish, and they. But if they left one big fish with a bite out of it, that that um left a bad impression on those homeowners. You know it did. Yeah. But um, I would think that it's to the otter's advantage to go after smaller fish, and they're probably eating mostly small fish. But if they leave a big one every now and then, it makes people mad. So gosh, I don't know how you talk them into that. But uh, are they not at all into watching the otter? No, they're into fishing. And uh, mm, <laughs> that's going to be hard. Is it a small pond? No, no, it's a big pond. It's uh, five, seven acres. I would uh, speculate. It's it's three hundred yards long, uh, if not longer. And, and uh huh. So we can and, probably and tolerate. There, I, I happened to be there last night, uh, sitting watching the pond, and there was a watched a terrible commotion along the shore, and it went on and on for half an hour. And finally, I walked down. I don't know why I didn't go in instantly. <laughs> and there was a big there was a big bass in there. I'm going to guess he was 15, 18 inches long, dead. And uh, and there were there were fish and turtles fighting over it, and that thing was uh, was flailing around in the water. And the fish, when they'd go after it, trying to pull a bite out, would flick their tails, and the, and so we could see this splash a hundred yards away, wow. uh, rising two two feet in the air on occasion. It was amazing, and, but they were really tearing that carcass up, and it made me think. I don't know what killed the fish. Somebody might have uh, caught it, thrown it back, and injured, and it just died. But I hope it wasn't the otter. Yeah, it could be. And when you do catch and release with a fish for a little while, that fish is impacted. And if the otter is watching, they're smart enough to know that's a easy mark there to go after that fish that's just been released. So. That that could be a problem. You might, if this is in Mississippi, call the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. It's possible that a conservation officer or somebody might help move that otter, but I don't I don't know about that. That's that that might be a real hard thing to do. And I was going to say too, a lot of times in ponds, you can end up with an overabundance of fish that can end up stunting the growth, um, so you don't end up with as large of fish. Um, so. I don't know, maybe the otter's providing a service for them in that mechanism and kind of keeping that population at a level where you, you know, end up with larger fish in the long run. I I can't say for certain, but that's just another possibility. Because you're thinking he's eating a lot of little fish, too, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I I would. I mean, he's probably going to go for what's easy. Yeah, yeah. But um, calling the Department of Wildlife would not be a bad thing at all and just kind of talking to them about what can be done. If It is illegal for them to kill that otter. They can't just go ahead and kill it. All right. So they're going to have to talk to the Department of Wildlife 
you know, one way or the other. Yeah, one way like. or another, really. So it makes sense to go ahead and do that. All right, William, we appreciate your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Amy Carson of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, Amy, we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of dealing with the highway department and governmental entities. Uh, do you work with the private landowners? And what are some ideas and tips and things that private landowners can keep in mind when trying to preserve natural uh, habitats? Yeah, I have the opportunity very occasionally get to work with private landowners, um, and I've especially been a part of a project up in the range of that fish, the Yazoo darter that we were talking about, where we're working with the private landowner there. Um, and some of the work that we do with the landowners is on culverts and culvert placement, and we give guidance to them on how to place the culvert and recommendation and assistance. And um our recommendations with culverts are to be sure to size the culverts so they're really wide, as wide as the stream, um, and large enough to carry water through during high flow events so that the velocity of the water during high flow events doesn't kind of hit this pinched little culvert and shoot through there at a high velocity. Because what happens when that occurs is it scours out below that culvert, and you end up with the culvert being perched two or three feet above downstream, and our little stream fish can't get up that. So that's one of the recommendations that we have when placing culverts. And another recommendation we have um, is also to bury the culvert. If you have a, um, a small pipe culvert or, or large enough for your stream so it reaches bank to bank, um, to bury that, um, you know, we recommend 12 inches below the substrate. That way you always, even during low flow conditions, have flow going through the culvert, which allows um, fish and other critters to pass up through that. You know, that's an economics thing, too, for the landowner, because if you put too small a culvert in there... It's a false economy because you're, you're going to get erosion on the sides. Mm-hmm. You're going to get undercutting. You could end up losing your bridge over the culvert by using the wrong size, don't you think? Oh, I absolutely. Know you really need to be careful about that. Yeah, and there's some. There's yes, it's an, a long-term investment. It's a better investment to size and set your culvert properly yeah. because the maintenance cost goes way down over time. Well, and then that's good that, that something like that comes. It seems like that's a kind of a, a happy medium and, and a way to, to keep the loan on, landowners happy, but also to help uh, keep the environment strong as well. Uh, let's uh, get another call in. So we say good morning to Maggie in Flowood. Maggie, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I have a little animal in my yard. Uh, last week, my, I saw my dog with something in his mouth. And I yelled at him, he dropped it and came inside. And I tried to get a good look at the animal, and I was afraid he had killed it. It's about 8 to 10 inches long, and I looked it up on the Internet trying to find a picture, and sure enough, I did. It's a little hedgehog, a young one. A hedgehog? Yeah, I can't figure out how it got in my yard, but... Well, then that's somebody's pet, because that's not a native animal. That's somebody's pet. A a few months later, I mean, a few months ago, I saw this thing, my dog standing over by it in the yard, and it was pretty good size. And it wasn't moving. I couldn't see a head. I couldn't see feet. couldn't see a face, anything on it. Didn't know what it was. The dog finally moved away from it. When he moved away from it, it scurried away. And after I went and did some research on that, I decided it was probably a hedgehog, a large one. And I'm wondering if it's a mother hedgehog who's had a little hedgehog underneath my uh, deck. 
because what the little one started moving, I didn't see the big one any place, but when the little one started moving good, and I got a look at it, I stood there and watched it, and it went underneath my deck. Yeah, you need to get us a let's send us a picture. You know, hedgehogs do not get very big. I don't. Well, it was eight to ten inches is going to be a really big hedgehog, isn't it, Um, Troy? Yeah, yeah. They're they're tiny little things. You might want to look again online and see if if you can find some. Well, it had quills. I can tell you that because I saw them standing up. (laughs) And and the only thing I could think, I know what they porcupine. And it had a cute little face and a long little snout with a little nose on the end of it. Oh, it my goodness. Great, grayish, white in color. <laughs> wow. You should. You actually should try to catch that. Well, how do I catch it? I don't know what to do. I don't want the dog to kill it. Throw a net over it. A pair of gloves. Throw a net over it with gl- and use gloves, yeah. Um, or um, And if you can do that, then you can put it in a cat carrier or a dog carrier and get it to a... Yeah, take it to a vet yeah, or something. The hedgehogs yeah. that we see uh, as pets, generally they're probably no longer than four or five inches long. Mm-hmm. A real uh, white tummy, right? Yes, yeah. yes. They do have a little pointy nose, and they do have quills. Mm-hmm. They don't have really a tail that you can visualize. All right. Uh, and again, Maggie, if you can uh, get a picture of it and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, we might could help you further identify what it was, and that could give us a, a better idea of maybe how, uh, what, you know, where to proceed from uh, there. All right, uh, time for a final break this hour. We are on Creature Comforts this morning, and our guest has been Amy Carson from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We'll be visiting with Amy throughout the rest of the hour. Uh, if you'd like to join in with a con- our conversation with a phone call, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the program after this, so stay tuned. You already know MPB Think Radio is a direct result of donations from listeners like you. But instead of counting the size of your donation in dollars, how about axles? Trucks to motorcycles, cars, even 18-wheelers. Your donated vehicle of any size helps fund the programs here on Think Radio. For more information on how to donate your vehicle, visit mpbonline.org support. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Harfield. Our guest today is Amy Carson from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, to join our conversation this morning, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 And a reminder, if you ever missed today's show, any of today's show, or any of our shows on MPB Think Radio, you can subscribe to podcasts using your favorite podcast app, or if you prefer, you can download the MPB Public Media app, and that way uh, you get to listen to all the MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. So, Amy, we have been talking about uh, the impact that roadways sometimes have on wildlife and our natural surroundings. Um, if, When properly placed and, and, and if, if thought goes into where and how these um, culverts and roads are placed, can they benefit wildlife? Oh, sure. And um, one thing, if culverts are placed properly, they can be virtually invisible to the stream and the animals that live in it. And um, also just wanted to say that um, roadways, our right-of-ways, can can have great benefits for um, pollinator species. 
Um, I don't. Recently, I took a trip up north, and I noticed along the interstate the wildflowers were just going crazy. Um, it was beautiful array of colors, and with all those wildflowers, it brings in a lot of pollinators, and also brings in monarch butterflies. And they um, specifically use monarch uh, milkweed to lay their eggs and and for as a food source. And our right-of-ways at our mode end up being a great habitat for milkweed to come up. So it ends up being perfect habitat for monarch butterflies. And um, I've noticed already this year the monarch um, the monarchs are in our area, as well as the milkweed. It's coming up along the, the sides of the highways. Well, that's great, too, because not, not only is it a benefit to uh, to our wildlife, but as you said, it makes the, the road look prettier. So when you're going somewhere, you have some nice stuff to look at as well. Uh, we do have some emails still to get through. This one is uh, says that I live in the Bellhaven neighborhood in Jackson and been in the same house for almost two years. I've developed quite the routine with the birds in my backyard. It's a very wooded area that backs up to a creek, very rich wildlife, including many bird species. Every morning, I go out to my backyard, which sits pretty high off the ground, and put out seed. The birds see me coming. They hear hear me as I always whistle the same tune when I'm coming out the back door and they start coming over. They become progressively more brave since I started doing that. In fact, they really aren't scared of me anymore, especially the cardinals, sparrows, and morning doves. If I don't feed them by a certain time, they start coming up to my window like, hey, lady, we're hungry. Where are you? The issue is this. I'm moving in a couple of weeks to another house on the other side of the neighborhood, and I'm a bit concerned about the birds, that I've spoiled the birds and made them too dependent on the seed and that they'll suffer when I move. Do I need to start tapering off the feedings? try to rope in a current neighbor to take over the routine. Birding has become very meaningful to me, and I know it might sound silly, but I'm worried about them. So any thoughts there? No, I would worry too. Yeah, and uh, good for you. That's great that you've gotten your birds trained. And both of your ideas were good about if maybe tapering off a little bit so that they start foraging natural food. And uh, birds tend to do that anyway because, you know, they... What they can get as as natural food around is probably a little better for them than what we're giving them anyway. Although they get a good burst of energy from those black oil sunflower seeds, and I bet that's what she's feeding them. And uh, but if you can find a, a neighbor that would enjoy kind of being trained to do what you've been doing, that would be pretty neat. That you could kind of transfer those birds to that neighbor. Okay. And then Paul in Greenwood emailed in to ask that he's heard of people having their yard designated as a bird sanctuary or habitat. What are the criteria for that, and how would that go about getting done? Okay. I did that years ago, and I think the program's still going on. Go to the National Wildlife Federation Backyard. Let's see. What's it called? It was like a Backyard sanctuary, sanctuary. backyard, yard, wildlife back in the backyard kind of a thing. And we got a certificate that my daughter had hanging on her wall. And it was it was a cool thing to do with a certain age of kids. Uh, but it it's, should be the Mississippi Wildlife Federation or the National Wildlife Federation. Okay. Let's get some calls in here before the end of the show. We say good morning to Alicia from Bay St. Louis. You're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a uh, commercial piece of property on Highway 603 in Bay St. Louis. It has water on two sides of it. Uh, we've begun to build, and the business across the canal, and then one of the gentlemen from the other side of the canal, told us that there is a 9 to two, 10 foot alligator that comes around right where we just put a pier. So I'm wondering, um, is this animal able to be caught and relocated somewhere? That's a question for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. 
they're really the only people that can have the authority to do that. And um, but actually, you know, if you're going to live in that place around Bay St. Louis, that's pretty much what people get used to doing. It's not a good place to live if you don't like alligators, I would think. And uh, that's their habitat. And um, I imagine the the um, the wildlife guys are going to tell you you need to get used to that. And if you remove that one, somebody else would come in. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there are pl- plenty, plenty of gators. Right in that yeah, area. yeah, and that's usually why people want to live in places like that because they get to see alligators. <laughs> You're just going to have to get into that. That's part of the habitat. It, you know, if you want a neighborhood, you, you need to be in a neighborhood. Yeah. All right, Alicia. Thanks for your call. Let's get one final call in here, and it is Amber in Tupelo. Good morning, Amber. You're on the air with us. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Um, so the Easter Bunny brought my daughter a little dwarf lion head rabbit, and I was wondering, uh, we have an outdoor hut for it, and I think they're normally indoor animals, and I was just, uh, it's eight weeks old, and it's not really eating much right now, and I was wondering if it's a problem with the outdoor hut, or if y'all could give me any advice on how to help this little guy transition. All right. How old, how old is it? Eight weeks. Well, you know, you need a varied diet. Uh, we had uh, a person here that had a lion head that lived to be about 10 years old and good food. Uh, I Actually, she had heat in the, in the uh, winter and air conditioning in the, in the summer for this bunny. But, you know, you don't have to go to that extreme. But I suspect that being inside at this age would be better. Uh, and uh, just use a good quality rabbit food along with plenty of uh, good quality, say, Timothy hay, that sort of thing. So there's plenty online that you can look at that will help with that. All right. Thanks, Amber, for your call. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners just like you. And again, a big thanks to everyone who contributed during our recent fund drive. To find today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener is Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Amy Carson, I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next at 10, it's the autocorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.